Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror content related from interviews, reviews, top 10 lists, and of course, everything in between. I do apologize for missing last week. I was a little under the weather, a little stressed from work, and uh, yeah, I just didn't have the time or motivation or anything. And then I got sick late last week, like super sick where I was, like, in bed, so I couldn't really pump one out over the weekend either, so here we are today, getting over everything, still have a massive fucking headache, though, but hey, we truck on. Today we're gonna head back to some true crime, and we're gonna talk about a weird little case involving a lot of leaves. This one's fairly recent, well, for this podcast anyway, and this is about Matthew Hoffman, and he became known as the Leaf Killer. Why? Well, no, he didn't go kill the Toronto Maple Leafs. Or did he? No, he did not. But it more has to do with what they found in his house after a few days of searching. This is the story of the leaf killer, Matthew Hoffman. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. We all know somebody who has a weird obsession with something, be it collecting toys or dolls, figures, or, you know, maybe they have an obsession with paintings or 18th century crime or who knows what. Everybody's got a weird little thing that they like that nobody else really gets. And then you insert Matthew Hoffman into the equation. And people should have realized at some point that this guy had some sort of mental illness when he was obsessed with leaves. Yes, leaves, the things that fall from trees. They're in abundance, they're everywhere, if you live in the proper, you know, places, like here in Ontario where, you know, you get a lot of leaves all the time, even in the winter. Magic somehow. Regardless, what was Matthew Hoffman's crimes? Did he just collect leaves? What else did he do? Well, back in November of 2010, Tina Herman failed to show up for work, and this obviously set off some alarms for her co-workers. It was believed that at 32 years old, Tina Herman was a very fun-loving and hard-working woman who was defined by her caring nature. She liked sunflowers and collecting dolphins, figurines I imagine, but her favorite thing in life was being a mother. Herman loved watching and cheering on her children as they participated in sports and wanted nothing more than to fill their lives with happiness and comfort. She was indeed divorced, however, which is a little bit sad, but she did live harmoniously with her ex-husband, Larry Maynard. And although navigating their new relationship took practice, both parties always put their kids first, which is how it should be if you get divorced and have kids, that is. Sadly, after losing her job, Herman moved Sarah, age 13, and Cody, age 9, to Mount Vernon, Ohio, where they lived with her new boyfriend, Greg Borders, even though they were on the brink of breaking up. Their new home located on King Beach Drive was isolated from the other houses with a large backyard that opened up into the surrounding woods, where presumably there was a lot of leaves. Herman eventually found a job at the local Dairy Queen, and life eventually settled down for the family. That was until Herman failed to report into work on one November day in 2010, and that day was November 10th. She was known for being extremely reliable. Herman's no-show or no-calls concerned her manager and friend Valerie Haythorne, who said the absence was so out of character for her. That's a direct quote. Herman wasn't really the type to blow off responsibilities or anything like that. 
she would have called in if she couldn't make her 4pm shift. Now knowing Herman was planning on ending a rocky relationship, Haythorne called the local sheriff's department to perform a wellness check in case something went awry during the breakup, which is a smart move by her friend Valerie. I guess nothing really came of that wellness check because Herman failed to show for work again the next day and it was even more concerning when her children's school reported that Sarah and Cody were absent with a sinking sensation of something terribly, terribly wrong happening. Haythorne started calling mutual friends to see if they had heard from her or her kids. During one such phone call, she discovered that Herman's best friend Stephanie Sprang was also unreachable and Sprang's boyfriend had reported her missing that morning. Being the loyal friend that she is, Valerie took matters into her own hands. However, this is why you leave things like this to the professionals. Trauma. It's terrible. When you go to visit your friend and see if she's okay, you're worried, you're already on edge that something terrible has happened, and you walk into her house and find what she found, well, that's why you leave things up to the police. Sadly, Haythorne had no way of knowing what was about to await her inside the house when she broke into Herman's residence through a back window. Upon entering the hallway, Haythorne encountered a gruesome crime scene. Thick pools of blood pooled on the floor and covered the walls and furniture. She also saw what she believed to be, and was later confirmed as, drag marks along the wood. We've all seen the horror movies where the victim claws and grabs at anything they can and they break their nails off, leaving indentations in wood and drywall and the wallpaper. Presumably that's what she saw. Haythorn called the cops a second time about Herman's disappearance, this time telling them there's blood everywhere. While the home was covered in bodily fluids, there was no sign of the family besides a red shoe print matching Sarah Maynard's heading towards the garage. Authorities quickly descended on the crime scene about fucking time and not only declared that the Herman family was missing, but also was in grave danger. I wonder what gave them that idea. Usually in a missing persons case, the first person that is always suspected is the boyfriend or husband or ex-boyfriend or ex-husband or previous lover or some sort of male relationship. That's usually the case, and that was the case here. However, authorities were quick to clear Herman's boyfriend as a suspect. The relationship was indeed reportedly rocky, and the pair had broken up but still lived together while Herman searched for a new apartment. Obviously, anger or jealousy could have easily been a motive for the ex-boyfriend, Greg Borders, to harm the family. Borders had also happened to be away the night the family disappeared, which struck police as a little too coincidental. Borders, however, had a very solid alibi, and they quickly determined he had nothing to do with the disappearance. His punch cards for work were confirmed, and multiple co-workers reported seeing him on shift. He then slept over at a friend's house as they had reservations at a golf course the next morning, which they both checked in at. Borders later gave authorities full permission to search his home and reportedly cooperated with all search efforts. While investigators searched Herman's home, a seemingly discarded clue at the crime scene led them to their suspect. Police noticed recently purchased garbage bags in the garage along with heavy-duty tarps. After seeing several cleaning products and various oils on the bloodstains, they determined the suspect likely tried to clean up the aftermath of the attack and left to purchase more supplies to erase the evidence. Using a Walmart receipt left at the crime scene as their guide, detectives rushed to the local store to pinpoint their culprit. This is a rookie mistake. 
I mean, I don't want to tell you how to kill somebody and get away with it, but leaving a receipt for your cleanup materials at the scene of the crime usually isn't a good way to go about it. Of course, the police ended up using timestamps and security footage to spot the customer who made the purchases at the store. Oddly enough, the person also bought, and you're not going to believe this, a turkey sandwich and a discounted Halloween t-shirt. Detectives tracked his movements until he entered the parking lot where he entered a Toyota Yaris and drove away. After cross-referencing their information with a list of Toyota Yaris owners, authorities identified their suspect, Matthew Hoffman, an unemployed tree trimmer. Hoffman had a criminal history during which he served six years in prison for first-degree arson, burglary, and theft, so he was not a good guy to begin with. Very easy to pinpoint as well. While detectives watched Hoffman on the security tapes, 13-year-old Sarah Maynard was locked away in a crawlspace under his house. Yes, terrifying. After police identified Hoffman, a deputy recognized him as a man he pulled over near Kenyon College after the Herman family was officially declared missing. The realization was a vital piece of information for the investigation, as Herman's car was later found abandoned in a parking lot. Hoffman had indeed gone to the Walmart to purchase the garbage bags and tarp, but he dropped them off in Herman's garage. He determined the best way to destroy the evidence was to burn down the house. Leaving the residence once again, Hoffman took Herman's truck to purchase several tanks of gasoline. The truck kept stalling on the way back to King Beach Drive, however, forcing him to desert the vehicle in the college parking lot. Hoffman then walked to his home where he entered his Yaris with the intention of driving back to the truck to receive the gas. It was on this drive back to the truck that the deputy stopped him. The deputy questioned why Hoffman was trying to enter a closed parking lot, to which Hoffman replied he was waiting for his girlfriend to get off work, and the name he provided, it was Sarah, which is a sick, twisted thing to do. Herman wouldn't be declared missing until the following day, so the deputy had no way of knowing the car inside the parking lot belonged to a missing family, or that he was speaking to their killer. With no reason to suspect any foul play, the deputy let Hoffman go. On November 14th, four days after the Herman family was declared missing, detectives acquired a no-knock, no-notice warrant and raided Hoffman's home. And after apprehending a sleeping Hoffman, the SWAT team noticed something bizarre about his home. Very easy to spot. Doesn't take a genius to notice that there were a fuck ton of leaves covering about near every aspect, every inch, every spot of his house. Strange. Thousands and thousands of leaves covered the floor and furniture with some mounds so high police initially thought they were used to hide bodies. Nestled among the leaves were also bags stuffed with foliage. Stacked floor to ceiling, the stacks lined the living room walls with more than 110 bags inside the bathroom alone. A member of the SWAT team recalled his confusion at the site, saying he's seen a lot of crazy cases, but this guy, wow, who has a 14 by 14 tarp in their living room with leaves piled three feet high. Hoffman later claimed his leaves were for insulation, but detectives couldn't help thinking about his previous arson conviction and wondered if the leaves were meant to be some sort of accelerant or kindling in the event he needed to burn his house down to hide his crimes. In and among the leaves were also drawings of weird animals and doodles not dissimilar to those a teenager might make in their notebooks. A giant peace sign was on the door, stars covered various parts of the walls, and random names were written in marker. 
The bathroom was also covered in black drawings, including one of a jack-o'-lantern. The mixture of leaves and crude drawings unnerved even the most veteran of SWAT team members. There is one good aspect to this case, and that is Sarah Minard was eventually found alive. Leaves weren't the only things that the SWAT teams found inside the house. Hidden inside a crawl space in the basement was a bound and gagged Sarah Maynard. Wearing only a makeshift pair of plastic pants that served as a diaper, the 13-year-old was chained to the wall and lying on a large pile of, you guessed it, leaves crafted into a bed. She was fed rotten food and spoiled milk, and Sarah had no recollection of how many days had passed or what had become of her family. She told investigators that the last thing she remembered was Hoffman attacking her brother after they came home from school. Terrified, Sarah ran into her room screaming for her mother, but Hoffman broke through the door and subdued her. He threatened her, claiming if she started screaming that he was going to kill her. He then tied her hands, blindfolded her, and forced her into the back of a car along with several bags. The poor girl had no way of knowing she was currently being shoved into the backseat of a car next to garbage bags filled with her family's dismembered remains. For the next four days, Sarah was chained to her kidnapper while he slept, forced inside a dark, cold cross space covered in leaves and reportedly, repeatedly assaulted. Upon being found, Sarah told detectives she was worried Hoffman killed her dog, but he assured her that he would return her to her family by Christmas. Not yet knowing the fate of her family, she asked detectives to take her to school because she was worried about her extended absence. That's such an innocent way of thinking about things, but it was probably shock, and how else is a 13-year-old supposed to cope with what was going on? Terrible, terrible shit. Hoffman told investigators he targeted the Herman house because it was isolated from the neighbors and the garage door was broken, providing him easy entry. He claimed he only meant to rob the family. But things went sideways. When Herman came home early, he was shocked by her arrival and out of instinct, I guess, Hoffman hit her a couple of times in the head, but this would not knock her out. It was not doing the job, he said, and he started panicking. So in his panic, he stabbed Herman multiple times with a serrated hunting knife. Sadly, during the attack, Tina's friend Stephanie Sprang entered the apartment. She was originally only there to help Tina find a new apartment to move into, and then she walked in on her friend being attacked. Sprang rushed to help, but was quickly overpowered and also killed. Once both women were down, Hoffman killed the family dog to stop it from barking, and then dragged the bodies into the bathtub where he dismembered all of them. He was just about finished when the children came home, and he set himself upon Cody Maynard first. Hoffman told authorities he was in a total state of shock after the murders, and he wandered around the house slowly, coming to the realization of what he had done and how bad it was. Although police believed the situation spiraled out of control, they didn't believe the attack was random, as Hoffman suggested. The break-in and subsequent kidnapping seemed a little too methodically planned based on receipts found in his home. Prior to the attack, Hoffman purchased a pair of sure grip gloves on November 4th, then duct tape and another pair of gloves on November 8th. A search of his home also provided an online history of purchases showing that he bought the knife used to stab his victims days before the break-in. The items suggested a motive far more devious than a home robbery. Even sicker, Hoffman claimed he took good care of Sarah, quote-unquote good care, 
even though he repeatedly violated Sarah, Hoffman claimed he took good care of her. He told police he fed her hamburgers, let her play video games, and gave her books to read. Sarah disputed his claims naturally when speaking about her experience. She said Hoffman said all of that just to make himself feel better for thinking that he fed her and gave her stuff, because he didn't. He didn't let her shower or do any of that stuff, she said. Regardless of how Hoffman treated her, Sarah was determined to reach that part of him that allowed her to live during the invasion. If she could stay in his good graces by listening to him and asking him questions, she hoped she would survive long enough for someone to find her, and her instincts proved true. The search for Herman, Sprang, and Cody didn't stop once Hoffman was arrested, but authorities became convinced their missing person's case was more or less a homicide. Initially uncooperative, Hoffman sat in silence for hours while police tried to determine the fates of the remaining family members. Hoffman's silence persisted until he suffered from a self-proclaimed nightmare involving a food processing plant and a trash bag filled with dismembered limbs. Hoffman claimed the nightmare helped him remember what he did the day of the home invasion and where he put the bodies. However, he would only tell detectives what he remembered if they agreed to his terms. What a dickhead. Hoffman said he would write down his victim's location on a piece of paper and give it to his lawyer. Once this lawyer had the paper, the detectives would then let Hoffman escape, only to shoot him as he fled. Once he was dead, Herman, Sprang, and Cody's location would be revealed. When Detective Dietz told Hoffman he could not agree to those terms, Hoffman said he lied about actually knowing where the remains were. The lie didn't last for long though, facing the death penalty, Hoffman made a full confession two days later in exchange for a lighter sentence. I hate how criminals can use those fucking cards, I have information you want, don't kill me, and yeah, I'll let you know, I'll let you do it, I'll just do whatever you want, you find the bodies, give the closure, blah 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 blah. I think cops should be able to lie, be like, yeah, yeah, no, no, death penalty for you, absolutely not, nothing, you'll be fine, just give us all the names. Great, awesome, now you're going to fucking death's row, you fucking dickhead. Like, fuck. Now, don't get me wrong, I do not believe in the death penalty, but if that's what he was facing and he's negotiating people's lies and closure and all this shit just to get a lighter sentence, I don't believe in that either. So if he is facing the death penalty, then he should get the death penalty, regardless of what information he gives up. Anyway, back to the confession and the location of the bodies. He directed detectives to a 60-foot-tall birch tree in Kokosing Wildlife Area. As he knew it was a hollow tree, Hoffman climbed the birch and disposed of the cut-up bodies inside. He told police about the tree, and Hoffman requested, quote, pictures to show that the authorities had not destroyed the tree in search of the remains. And who fucking cares? Fuck that guy. Anyway, his request, I guess, would eventually be moot because Gary Ludwig, a supervisor with Ohio's Division of Wildlife, confirmed the department cut down the birch tree to prevent it from being a morbid sightseeing thing. While most people can sate their morbid curiosity by reading articles about gruesome crimes, others engage in dark tourism in which they visit grisly crime scenes. Out of an abundance of caution and respect to the family, the Division of Wildlife thought it best to remove the tree entirely to allow Sarah Maynard the opportunity to grieve in peace. However, Hoffman's negotiation, I guess, worked a little bit because after he disclosed the location of Tina Herman, Cody Maynard, and Stephanie Sprang, Hoffman agreed to plead guilty to the 10 felony counts that the prosecutors would bring against him. 
Those charges included aggravated murder, gross abuse of a corpse, burglary, kidnapping, and sexual assault. His plea prevented him from facing the death penalty, but it wouldn't stop him from spending the rest of his life in jail. And on January 6, 2011, Hoffman was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Good fucking riddance. Sarah Maynard attended Hoffman's sentencing where prosecutor John Thatcher read a written statement from her before the judge and jury. Sarah wrote, quote, I'm not scared of you, Matthew, but I'm going to stand up for myself and live my life. A statement a teenager has lived up to. In the years following the loss of her family, Sarah Maynard has spoken about her ordeal in hopes of potentially helping future victims survive should they ever find themselves kidnapped. She's also vowed to live a happy, fulfilled life just like her mother always wanted. I guess you can say there was a small light at the end of the tunnel. Sarah survived. Sarah went on to live her life. Presumably, Sarah is still around today and happy. That's all I can hope for. And in terms of her privacy, I don't want to dig into her life any more than has already been exposed to the public. So hopefully Sarah's doing well. And I wish her all the best should she ever come across this podcast. But that is going to do it for me this week. My name is Casey, and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a five-star rating on Spotify. It really helps the podcast grow, and it just makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. If you want to contact me on social media, you can do so as well on Instagram at Ominous Origins Pod, or on Facebook at Horror Shots. Let me know what you think. I'd really like to hear from you guys. But until next time...